In Jesus' name, pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, we're there in Numbers chapter number six. And of course, uh, the book of Numbers is a uh, book that we've been going through on Sunday nights in a series called Wilderness Wanderings. Uh, but we've had so many special things going on over the last several Sunday nights that I uh, decided to preach uh, on the book of Numbers this morning. And of course, there's so much information in Numbers chapter six that uh, that I, I thought was interesting stuff that I didn't wasn't going to be able to cover in one sermon. So uh, this morning uh, we went through the first part of, of Numbers chapter six, and then tonight uh, we're going to go through the second part. So this is part two of a sermon entitled "The Nazarite Vow." As we've been going through the book of Numbers, and we're in Numbers chapter six uh, tonight. And just real quickly, just to, to kind of help you catch up or to remind you. Uh, this morning we looked at, there, there's five things about the Nazarite vow that I wanted to cover, five points. This morning we looked at three, and uh, tonight we're going to look at two of them. So, of course, this morning we talked about the purpose of the Nazarite, and the purpose of the Nazarite was that anyone could be consecrated unto the Lord. Anyone could come unto the Lord. We talked about the period of the Nazarite, or the duration, and of course uh, we talked about this morning, we're going to talk about it tonight, that there are some exceptions to this rule but the vast majority of people, this was a temporary thing. It was a certain amount of days that came to an end. And then, of course, we talked about the parameters of, of a Nazarite. What does it mean to take the Nazarite vow? And we learned that it was abstaining from the great products. Remember, nothing intoxicating and nothing indulgent. It was allowing the hair of the head to grow, and it was avoiding uh, dead bodies. So we covered those uh, three points this morning, and tonight we're going to finish up with points number four and five. Before we get into those points, let me just give you just kind of a, a fun fact uh, about uh, Numbers chapter six that you may have not thought about. But of course, we talked about the fact that in number six, we find this kind of exception to the fact that God says that men uh, and women who take this vow should not cut their hair. And of course, because of that, we have like Samson, whose hair grew uh, as a result. We saw in First Corinthians where the Bible says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man... Uh, is that it's a shame for man to have long hair. So it's kind of interesting that in Numbers chapter 6, we have this exception where God is telling men to not cut their hair. Now, we know, of course, that's only for a short amount of time, uh, for a temporary amount of time, but for people who had a Nazarite vow their entire lives, like Samson, they ended up having uh, long hair. What's interesting about that is that number 6 gives us a reason for an example of a man like Samson having long hair but uh, chapter 5, if you remember chapter 5, uh, we saw a woman uh, who, there was a situation where a woman would have her hair cut off or have her hair shorn. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. And in chapter 5, we have God usually wants women to have long hair, but in chapter 5, you have an exception uh, where there was a certain ritual where a woman would have her hair uh, shorn. And then in chapter 6, God wants men to have short hair, but there's an exception where he's telling people to uh, cut long, to have their hair long. I don't know what that has to do with anything. I just thought that was interesting that you have those two chapters back to back. You have a woman getting a haircut in chapter five and a guy growing out his hair in chapter six. So just a little bit of a fun fact. But uh, we're there in Numbers chapter six and uh, look, look at verse number one just real quickly. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to, a vow, to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto uh, the Lord. So like I said, we already dealt with the purpose of the Nazarite, the period of the Nazarite, the parameters of the Nazarite. So tonight I want to talk about the participants of the Nazarite vow. And depending on how you're looking at it, it's either point number one for tonight, or if you're continuing your, point, your notes from this morning, it's point number four, the participants of, a, uh, of the Nazarite vow. And of course, we see there in verse two that the Bible says, when either man or woman shall separate themselves. And I made that point this morning, that this was a vow that anybody could take. You did not have to be a Levite. You did not have to be a priest. You did not have to be a man. It could be a man or a woman from any tribe. They could take on uh, this uh, vow. But when we talk about the participants of a Nazarite vow, we, of course, want to talk about some famous people in the Bible who either were Nazarites or may have been Nazarites. So let's just kind of run some verses real quickly and look at some of these. Let me start with the most popular Nazarite. And we already talked about him this morning, uh, but we'll look at him tonight. And, of, and again, that of course, that's Samson in the Bible. So you're there in the book of Numbers. Keep your place in Numbers. That's our text for tonight. But go with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter number 13. If you're in Numbers, you're going to go past Deuteronomy past the book of Joshua, into the book of Judges. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And let's look at the most popular 
Nazarite in the Bible, and that is Samson. Judges chapter 13 and verse 3, the Bible says, And the angel of the Lord, Judges 13, 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and she said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. And this is, of course, a prophecy of the fact that Samson was going to be born. An angel appears to his mother and says, Thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, verse 4, Beware, I pray thee. Now notice what we learned this morning about the Nazarite vow, that they were to abstain from great products, allow their ha the hair of their head to grow, and avoid dead bodies. Notice how that's reflected here. The angel says to this woman, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Notice what he says, And no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And again, this was uh, unique. This was not a normal thing in which people were just Nazarites from the womb. But here an angel appears and says, This child, uh, no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. So of course, we see that Samson was a Nazarite uh, from the womb. And he lived his life under these parameters where he did not get a haircut, uh, where he abstained from great products, where he avoided dead bodies. And of course, Samson is a very interesting uh, character in the Bible. But what, And I don't have time to go through the life of Samson. And, and I, I preached through the book of Judges many, many years ago. And maybe one of these days I'll do a whole series just out of, life, uh, out of the life of Samson. But something you need to understand about Samson is that when you look at his life in the book of Judges, because it covers several chapters, uh, you have to understand that he did not, he's not bad the whole time. In fact, the Bible kind of seems to indicate, and there's this break in, in his life story where you have all these things that he was doing that were uh, not necessarily bad, and then there's this kind of this break where he goes bad. Uh, and when he goes bad, he, of course, begins to break all of these vows. He uh, finds a, a, the dead carcass of a lion, and he goes to it. Of course, he eventually gets his hair cut, and as a result, he loses his strength. So we have this Nazarite, Samson, who's the most famous of the Nazarites because he's a Nazarite from his womb. And, of course, we know that God gave him supernatural strength and, and all of those things. Now, again, we talked about it this morning, but I'll just uh, say it again. The reason that his hair became long was because he was a Nazarite from his womb. He was a Nazarite his entire life, so therefore, no razor shall come on his head, and the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. So that's the most famous, the most popular Nazarite in the Bible. That's the most popular Nazarite, but let's talk about other possible Nazarites, uh, other individuals that might have been Nazarites in the Bible as well. You're there in Judges, go to 1 Samuel. You go past Ruth into the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I want to word it that way. Uh, and some people may disagree with, with me on this or disagree on this point, and that's fine. Uh, but some of these examples I'm going to give you, I, I, with Samson, I would say he's the most popular Nazarite. With these guys, I would say that they're possible Nazarites. Because unlike Samson, I can't really find a verse in the Bible that says they were a Nazarite. Like the Bible says about Samson that no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. With these other examples, there's not a verse that tells us that they're a Nazarite, but there's verses that seem to indicate that they probably were a Nazarite. You know, I tend to think that they probably were Nazarites, but I'm, I'm going to say they're possible Nazarites because the Bible does not explicitly tell us that they were Nazarites. One was Samuel. Samuel, if you're there in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1 and verse 9, the Bible says this, 1 Samuel 1, 9, So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk, now Eli the priest sat upon, sat upon the seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow. So that's kind of the first indication that Samuel might have been a Nazarite because we know that the Nazarite vow was a vow that, was, that could be taken. Here the Bible tells us she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord. Because you remember, the vow of the Nazarite was to be separated unto the Lord. And she's vowing a vow saying, I'll give him unto the Lord, referring to Samuel, because she doesn't have a son. She wants a, a child. She says, I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. So we see that she vowed a vow, verse 11, 
she, in her vow, she promised to give Samuel unto the Lord all the days of his life. And look at the last part of verse 11. And there shall no razor come upon his head. So that seems to indicate that this was a Nazarite vow. The Bible does not explicitly say Samuel had a Nazarite vow. And I'm not, I tend to think that Samuel did have a Nazarite vow on him. I'm not saying that he was a Nazarite his entire life. There probably was an end date to uh, his Nazarite vow. Uh, but again, the Bible does not necessarily give us those details. But we know that at his birth, his, his mother is making this vow. She's vowing to give him unto the Lord. And as part of that vow, she is saying that there shall no razor come upon his head. So we see Samuel as a possible uh, Nazarite. Uh, and, and, and he would have been a Nazarite from the womb, although I don't necessarily think that he was a Nazarite his entire life. Go to the New Testament book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We spent some time in Luke this morning, so I, I want you to do the same thing. When you get to Luke, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it, and I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke chapter number 1. And look at verse number 13. Luke 1, 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And of course, this is the angel appearing to Zacharias and, and prophesying the fact that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. Uh, and, and of course, she was barren. Look at verse 14. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Notice what the Bible says here. This seems to indicate that John might have had a Nazarite vow from his birth and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. So we know that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Remember when Elizabeth met Mary, the Bible says that the child leaped in, in her womb. So we know that he was filled from the Holy Ghost. But the Bible also tells us that the angel said that he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. So again, this is a possible indication of a Nazarite. Now here's what's interesting about these three examples. Samson, we know, was a Nazarite. Samuel was a possible Nazarite uh, because his mother vowed a vow. She said she'll give him unto the Lord and there shall no razor come upon his head. John the Baptist is a possible Nazarite because... Uh, the Bible tells us here that he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Here's what's interesting about these three, uh, these three uh, individuals. Both were born, oh, excuse me, not both. All three were born to women that were barren, who uh, were not able to have children. And um, all of them were given as a promise or given as a result of them praying and being blessed for being barren. And then, of course, all three of them were mightily used of God. And, you know, Samuel is one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. John the Baptist is one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. And Samson, we give him a bad rap, and we should because of the way that he ended his life. But no other man in the Bible is it said of more than Samson that the Holy Ghost came upon him. So we know that he was mightily used of God. So this is, it's kind of just interesting to look at the, the one guy that we know was a Nazarite and then two other guys that, I mean, they probably were Nazarites from birth. I'm not saying that they were Nazarites their whole life, but they were definitely Nazarites for a portion of their life, Samuel and John. And these were all individuals that were mightily used of God. And you know, one application that we could take from this is that you and I as parents, obviously we can't put a Nazarite, nor should we put a Nazarite vow on our children from womb, but we should be consecrating our children unto the Lord. And when the Lord gives us children and blesses us with children, we should do everything in our power to separate them and to train them and to encourage them to serve the Lord. And look, it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me that the guys in the Bible that you see, and look, I'm not, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say to you. Because sometimes I say this and people take it the wrong way. And I'm not, I'm not taking a jab at anybody or, or, or you know, uh, trying to say anything negative about anybody, but I am trying to just make an observation for you that it's interesting to me that the men who were mightily used of God in the Bible were all raised in what you and I would call a Christian home or a believing home. It's also interesting to me that some of the men that you see mightily used of God even today oftentimes are used, uh, are, are, are raised in good, godly Christian homes. 
And again, I'm not taking a, a, a bash at you or, or taking a jab at you. If you didn't grow up in a Christian home or you've got a testimony, if you've got a past or you've got those uh, 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 history or, or, or whatever, obviously God can use you for getting those things which are behind, reaching forth into those things who are born. But it's just interesting to me that God often wants to mightily use people that were raised in Christian home. Now, obviously, Christian homes, by and large, are lose. we're losing a lot of young people as well. But there's something special about a young person raised in a Christian home, in a good church, where they've been there their whole lives. You can raise men like Samuel, like John the Baptist, that can be mightily used of the Lord. Because these were men that were mightily used of God. So... Uh, we should raise young people for the glory of God, and we should raise them to be used by God. And look, don't raise your young people to go, you know, your, your whole goal in life is that they go to some Ivy League school or that they go have some career somewhere where they make a lot of money. You know what your goal in life for your children ought to be is that they serve God with their lives. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be pastors or evangelists or anything like that. But my goal in life is that my children, you know, I want them to work hard. I want them to be able to provide for themselves and provide for their families. But I don't care what they do with their lives. I don't care what college they go to, if they even go to college. I don't care about any of that. But what I care about is that they serve God. Is that they live their lives separated unto the Lord, consecrated unto the Lord. So I'm going to live my life and direct my life in such a way that my children see me. And I hope that when my boys and my girls grow up, that they look at a mom and dad and they'll say, my mom and dad didn't care about money. My mom and dad didn't care about brands. My mom and dad didn't care about stuff. Oh, they, they cared about God. Hey, let me tell you something. The goal is God. The goal is to serve God with our lives. And we see these men that even from the womb, they were consecrated unto the Lord. And they did great things for God. And we should try to emulate that. We should try to live that way. There's another example that I want to give you of a possible Nazarite, but this is a negative example. Now, it's a really good guy doing something wrong. And this is the Apostle Paul. Go to the book of Acts, if you would. You're there in Luke. You go past John into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 And the Bible seems to indicate that Paul might have taken on a Nazarite vow. Now, with John the Baptist, it's fine, but with Paul, it's not fine. And here's the reason. And I'll just kind of explain this to you real quickly. I won't take a lot of time on this. But what you and I, you and I generally call the one portion of the Bible the Old Testament and then another portion of the Bible, the New Testament. So you go from Genesis to Malachi, we call that the Old Testament. And then from Matthew to Revelation, we call that the New Testament. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's great. But you need to understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not designations of the Bible. In fact, the Bible has been divided and, and called those two things because there actually was an Old Testament or an Old Covenant And then there was a New Testament or a New Covenant. The reason that your New Testament is called the New Testament is not because somebody decided, let's call this portion of the Bible the New Testament. It is because from Matthew on, it covers mainly the portion of Christian history that is under the New Covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, here's what you need to get. The Old Testament or the Old Covenant actually goes into what we call the New Testament. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was born, and up until he died, lived under the Old Testament law. He lived under the Old Covenant. So when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're reading the stories of Jesus, he's actually living under the Old Covenant. And it's not until he dies, is buried, and resurrected that the New Testament or the New Covenant begins. That's why right before he died, he had what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. And he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament began with the shedding of his blood. That's why at the cross he said, it is finished. What was he referring to? The Old Covenant. So here's what I want you to get. Up until the cross, the Old Covenant was still in effect, which is why Jesus is 
partaking in the Passover, which is why his parents are having him circumcised and doing all these offerings and these things, because they're under that old covenant. When we read in Luke 1, where, uh, where John is a possibly a Nazarite being born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're still under that old covenant law, which is why it was totally fine for him to be a Nazarite. But when we get to the book of Acts, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, those things have been done away with. Now we have Paul possibly taking a Nazarite vow, but Paul was out of bounds. He should not have done that because at this point, he really was in the New Testament. Not in the New Testament like that portion of your Bible, but he was under the New Testament of the blood of Christ, the New Covenant. So he should not have been taken, uh, should have taken this Nazarite vow. If he took a Nazarite vow, he should not have done it. And of course, we know that that was uh, very close and there was a transition period there. But let's just look at these verses, Acts 18. I just want you to understand that. That if Paul did this, and again, the Bible's not clear that he did a Nazarite vow. I mean, I think he did do the Nazarite vow. But if he did it, he was wrong to do it. Acts 18, 18. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, notice what the Bible says, having shorn his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. Now, I don't know what other vow he would have taken that would have had him cut his hair, but we know that the Nazarite vow was a vow that you took where you didn't cut your hair, and then at the end of the vow, you shorn your head or you cut your head. So the Bible seems to indicate here in Acts 18, 18, that the Apostle Paul might have taken a Nazarite vow. Go to Acts 21. Now, Acts 18, 18, we're not really sure why he did that. And again, it, it might have just been uh, this thing where old habits die hard. And we know that Paul was a very zealous man, and he probably grew up taking Nazarite vows and doing these things. So maybe even after the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, he just took a Nazarite vow, but he should not have done it. In Acts 21, 26, we know that he should not have taken this vow. Because here, remember, Paul gets to Jerusalem, and James, the pastor in Jerusalem, is telling Paul, like, hey, all these Jews don't like you. And then they're kind of like pretending, like, he's like, well, just take this Nazarite vow to show them. Uh, Acts 21, 26, then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And again, he was out of bounds here because they shouldn't have been doing offerings. They shouldn't have been doing any of that. But we see that Paul might have taken, may, might have taken a Nazarite vow. And there's an application for us here as well. Because sometimes people, you know, we look at Paul, and of course Paul was a great man of God. Amen. And I mean, none of us, you know, uh, can compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul. But we do see the Apostle Paul do some wrong things in the book of Acts. You say, well, why does God do that? You know, I think God does that to just remind us that we're all human beings. And, and even great men of God make mistakes. Even great men of God make wrong choices. Even great men of God, like Paul, do things that they should not have done. So we see that Paul might have taken a Nazarite vow, but that would have been wrong. He was wrong uh, to do that. Now, let me just spend some time on Jesus. We talked about that this morning, but let's just talk about it a little bit. Go back to Luke uh, chapter 18. So we're talking about the participants of the Nazarite vow. And if you, if you kind of want to outline this, okay, point number four, the participants of the Nazarite vow. Letter A, the most popular Nazarite, Samson. Letter B, other possible Nazarites, Samuel, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul. Samuel, John the Baptist were right. They were under the Old Testament covenant. Paul was wrong. If he took the Nazarite vow, it was wrong for him to take it. To take it. And then uh, letter C, let's talk about one definite non-Nazarite, who sometimes people think he was a Nazarite, but he was not, and that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 18, verse 37, the Bible says, And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And again, I talked about it this morning, but I just want to make the point again. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was, from, he was a Nazarene. He was from Nazareth which is a town, which is a location, which is the place where he grew up. He was Jesus of Nazareth, 
sometimes referred as Jesus the Nazarene, but he was not a Nazarite. So, because sometimes people, they want to justify, because people want to believe that Jesus had long hair, which he did not. And then they'll say like, well, he had long hair because he was a Nazarite, but he was not a Nazarite, he was a Nazarene. Now, if you don't feel like that's a strong enough argument to say, well, maybe he was, a Naz- he was from Nazareth and he was also a Nazarite. Okay, well, let me prove to you that there's no way that Jesus was a Nazarite. Go, go back to Luke chapter 7. You're there in Luke 18, Luke 7. Because remember what we learned this morning? What were the parameters of the Nazarite vow? They were to abstain from grape products. They were to allow their, the hair of their head to grow, and they were to avoid uh, dead bodies. Well, first of all, Jesus is not avoiding dead bodies. He's like, he's, he's raising every dead body he can, it seems like. He even stops a funeral procession and just invites himself to a funeral just to raise a dead body from the dead. So Jesus is not avoiding dead bodies. That should be a clue to you that he was not uh, a Nazarite. But let me also say this. Jesus is also not avoiding grape products. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 33. Now, we already talked about the fact that John the Baptist was probably a Nazarite, right? I mean, he was probably a Nazarite. And what makes us think that is that the Bible specifically says, we saw it there in Luke chapter number uh, 1, that he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. So that's both. Strong drink is alcoholic wine, and then wine was just the grape juice or the grape product. We know that about John the Baptist. Look at Luke chapter 7 and verse 33. Now this is Jesus speaking about how people are comparing him to John. Luke 7, 33. For John the Baptist, this is Jesus talking about John. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he had the devil. So John was living a very austere life. Very self-disciplined, very strict life, because he was probably a Nazarite. And Jesus says, look, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil, verse 34, the Son of Man, referring to himself, Jesus says, the Son of Man is come eating and drinking. Jesus says, look, John and I were on two different spectrums. He was a Nazarite, and he's very austere, he's very strict, he's not eating bread nor drinking wine, but Jesus, if you remember, he was hanging out with the publicans, now he wasn't getting drunk, but he was eating, and he was fellowshipping, he was having a good time, you know, I don't know about you, but I would have rather hung out with Jesus, been in his group, you know, and, and here's what Jesus, he said, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, ye have the devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. So he said, look, and, and the point that Jesus is making, because he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, he says we can't win either way. He, he says, John comes all strict, and he's like this super strict, extreme, just no, I'm, I'm just going to eat locusts. You know, and I'm gonna wear, you know, wear rough clothing. He's super strict, super extreme, eating bread and drinking wine. And then the Pharisees say he has a devil. And then Jesus is the opposite. He's coming, eating and drinking and fellowshipping. And they call, they said he was a gluttonous man and a wine bibber. Now, obviously, Jesus was not a glutton. And the word wine bibber there is not necessarily referring to alcohol. It's just referring to the fact that he was drinking wine. It's like, sometimes people attack me because I like a glass-bottled Coke, you know? And they're like, oh, you're a wine-bibber, because, you know, it's like a sherry drink. But I'm like, hey, they said Jesus was gluttonous and a wine-bibber. And I'm not, I don't think I'm either one, but, you know, my friends are. So, the Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. So, Jesus is saying, we can't win either way. He said, you don't like John and you don't like me. He said, you know what you don't like is you, don't, you just don't like the truth. And, you know, one takeaway that we can learn from this is that God can use different types of people. You know, God, God can use people like John who are just like, no soda ever. And then God can use people like Pastor Jimenez who's like, give me a Mexican Coke, please. You know, so God can use different types of people. And John was very different than Jesus. They were the same on what they believed, but their styles were different. The way they preached was different. The way they conducted themselves and lived their life. You know, it's always funny to me because like in the new IFB, you always have these people 
who are trying to like pin new IFB pastors against each other. And, and I, you know, I bring this up because the Red Hot Preaching Conference is upon us. And it's always funny. People are like, well, Pastor Jimenez does this. Well, Pastor Anderson does this. Well, you know what? Well, John came neither eating or drinking. And Jesus came eating and drinking. It's okay to have different styles. It's okay to be your own person. It's okay to be different. Now, they both agreed on, on the doctrines, and we ought to all agree on the word of God. But God can use different types of people. But here's the truth. The people that did not like John, they also didn't like Jesus. And you know, the people who don't like Pastor Anderson, they also don't like Pastor Jimenez. And I feel like we're very different people. We're, you know, we're very good friends and we're very similar in what we believe. But if you know Pastor Anderson and you know me, we're very different people. But it's funny, you know, the world hates both of us. And, and, and God wants to, look, God can use different types of people and God wants to use different types of people. And I'm glad that there's a diversity within the work of God. And, of course, when I use the word diversity, I don't mean perversity like the world, you know, uses that word. Go to Numbers chapter 6. Keep your place there in Luke. We're going to come back to it. So point number four, because we're, we're continuing on this morning. Point number one, the purpose of the Nazarite. Point number two, the period or duration of the Nazarite. Point number three, the parameters of the Nazarite. Point number four, the participants of a Nazarite. We've talked about that. The most popular Nazarite, Samson. Other possible Nazarites, Samuel, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul, who would have been wrong to do it. And then one definite non-Nazarite, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. And we know that he's not a Nazarite because he's drinking grape products. He's drinking juice, wine. He's making juice and drinking it. So he's definitely not a Nazarite. Number five. Let's talk about the price of the Nazarite vow. The price of the Nazarite vow. Look at Numbers chapter 6 and verse 14. And he shall offer his offering unto the Lord. Because once they were done with this vow, they had to bring an offering unto the Lord. And I want you to notice this, this offering. And he shall offer his offering unto the Lord. One he lamb, that's a male lamb, of the first year without blemish, for a burnt offering. So they were supposed to bring a male lamb of the first year without blemish. And the whole purpose of this offering was to burn up that lamb. Just a burnt offering unto the Lord. Holy consumed unto the Lord. And one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish for a sin offering. And one ram without blemish for a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread. Cakes of fine flour mingled with oil and wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil and their meat offerings and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. And the priest shall offer all his meat offerings and his drink offerings. Now look, when you read Numbers 6 verses 14 through 17, it's like... It's like the cliff notes for the book of Leviticus. Because in the book of Leviticus, you have all these offerings that are explained. You got, and here you got a bunch of these offerings. You got a burnt offering. You got the peace offering. You have the sin offering. You have the, the meat offering. You have the drink offering. Uh, I mean, you've got like all the offerings. Now, the difference is in the book of Leviticus, we're being explained when you bring the burnt offering, when you bring the sin offering, when you bring the peace offering, when you bring... But when you did the Nazarite vow, when it was done, you brought all the offerings. All of them. You brought a burnt offering and a peace offering and a sin offering and a meat offering and a drink offering and a, all of the offerings were being offered. And the point that I want you to see is that if someone committed to take on the Nazarite vow, they were taking on a financial commitment. Because whenever they made that vow, they knew that at the end of the vow, this was going to cost them something. They had to bring all these sacrifices. I mean, look at it. They have to bring one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, a new lamb for a sin offering, one ram for a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, and it tells you cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil. And, uh, and their meat, that was the meat offering, and their drink offering, and bring them before the Lord, his sin offering, and the peace offering, and the basket of unleavened bread. So they, this was a financial commitment, and I want to just highlight for you that there was a price 
That's point number five for the use of taking notes. Taking notes. So there was a price of for taking the Nazarite vow. Now let me just say a couple of things. Go to Luke if you would. Go back to Luke if you kept your place in Luke. Luke chapter fourteen. First of all, let me point this out that this is how we know that the Nazarite vow is no longer applicable in the New Testament. Because sometimes people think like, can I just take a Nazarite vow today? Well, listen, Paul, no, okay? Maybe your heart's in the right place, but part of the Nazarite vow was all these sacrifices. So unless you're going to take all these, you know, this he lamb and this ewe lamb and one ram and unleavened bread to some priest to do these, this is not something that's applicable anymore. So that's one way that we know that the Nazarite vow has been done away with. But, but here's a point that I want you to understand is that this was something that was done voluntarily when somebody, remember we talked about this morning, when somebody chose to consecrate themselves unto the Lord, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. But here's the point. When someone chose to consecrate themselves unto the Lord, they better count the cost. Because at the end of this thing, it's going to cost them something. You understand what I'm saying? And spiritually, it's the same way. If you're going to consecrate yourself unto the Lord, I'm not talking about money, but you better count the cost and realize that it's going to cost you something to serve Jesus. This is why the Bible says in Luke 14, I love this passage of Scripture. I go to it often. Luke 14, the Bible says, Jesus says, Luke 14, verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? Whether we have sufficient... To finish it. The word sufficient means enough to finish it. Less happily, the word happily means by chance, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. And look, this is the Christian life of a lot of people. I often tell people, before you come to a place like Verity Baptist Church, you better count the cost. Because we've had a lot of people who started to build and they didn't count the cost. They didn't realize what it was going to cost them. Unless happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. And look, throughout the years, we've had people come to this church, and they start making decisions, start making choices, and then their family starts attacking them. And I tell people, count the cost. Because when you quit three years later, when you quit four years later, when you quit five years later, you're going to be the joke. You're going to be the, the punchline of the joke. Oh, so-and-so, they were in a cult. They will begin to mock him. Look at verse 30. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Look at verse 31. Here, I love this passage because there's two illustrations. One has to do with building and one has to do with battling. Look at verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and counteth, uh, and, and, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth off an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So he says, look, before you start building, you better count the cost, and before you go to battle, you better count the cost. And I like it because, look, we're like Nehemiah. We're both building and battling. You know, oftentimes people, they, they want to put our church in like one category. They think that churches can only be in one category. They're like, you're either building or you're battling. Which one are you, Verity Baptist Church? Are you building? Are you like growing, reaching people with the gospel, uh, doing discipleship, doing follow-up, training soul winning, soul winners? Are you building? Because there's some fundamental Baptists that are building. But a lot of those fundamental Baptists that are building, they're not battling. They're not fighting. They're not preaching against anything. They got a lot, you know, they're pushing soul winning, they're pushing the bus ministry, they're pushing a lot of growth, with good, praise the Lord, evangelism, but they're not battling. Then you got this other side, which they're battling, right? They're fighting, and they're preaching hard sermons, and they're, I mean, there's few of those nowadays, but you still have, even in the old IFB, you have some that are battling, but they're not building. They're not growing. And some of the people come to our church, and they're like, oh, this is a battling church. But look, let me explain them to you. We're building and battling. We're doing both. So yeah, we're going to have 100 soul winners out this week, knocking doors, following up on new converts, bringing them to church. We're going to have a discipleship class, and we're going to disciple new converts and new believers because we're building, but I'm still going to preach on alcohol and still going to preach against the queers and still going to preach hard preaching because we're battling as well. You say, which one are you doing, building or battling? We're doing both. We're building and battling. 
and we've counted the cost, and you better count the cost. Because let me explain something to you. It's going to cost you something to serve Jesus. And look, it's cost me something. And sometimes it's just, sometimes I want to tell people, like, why don't you just burn the bridges behind you and just jump in? Because, like, for me, it's not even an option. You say, Pastor, you know, are you ever going to do anything different? Like, I don't have any, look, let me explain to you. I'm unemployable. (laughs) This is the only gig I've got. It's either sink or swim. You know, there's nothing else for me to do. Do you understand that? It's cost me something, and I, I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, look, just, what was it, just Friday. I mean, I'm talking about two days ago. My wife and I, we, we, you know, we decided, like, oh, let's take the kids out for ice cream. So we take the whole family out to Cold Stone. We're, we're at Cold Stone just sitting there, you know, having ice cream. And as we, you know, we're just this nice family. It's me and, of course, my uh, beautiful wife, and I've got these six kids, you know, and two teenage boys, and they're dressed nice, and my four, you know, lovely daughters, and we're just walking to our car, and some black guy comes out, and that has nothing to do with the story, I've just given you the description, and, and he starts talking really loud to me, and he's like, are you, are you that preacher? Are you uh, Pastor Jimenez from Verity Baptist Church? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, I thought I recognized you, and he even said, it was weird, because he's like, I thought I recognized your kids, and I thought that was odd. And, and then he's like, and then he starts saying all these weird things about like, well, you're Baptist. Do you believe that you need Baptist, uh, you know, uh, for, to, I forget how he worded it, but he's like, to, to, to finish it off. And I'm like, finish what off? And, and I knew what he was saying, but I just wanted him to say, it. he was like, salvation. And I'm like, no, I don't believe that. And then he, he says, well, you know, in Mark 16, it says that he that believeth and is baptized, you know, shall be saved. And I said, well, it's funny how you quote that verse, but you don't quote the rest of it when it says, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Because believing is what, not believing is what condemns you. And he's like, oh, well, you know. And then he starts bringing up the homos. He's like, well, you preach against the homos or whatever. And he's talking really loud. And, I, and to my, my, my mind, in my mind, my thought is like, when people come up to me and they talk loud, I feel like they're trying to intimidate me. And here's the thing, like, I talk loud for a living. <laughs> like, it's my spiritual gift. So to me, I'm like, this guy's like trying to intimidate me. So as soon as he says something about homosexuals, I'm like, get away from me, you faggot. And we're like in, in the, just right outside of Cold Stone, like in the parking lot. I'm like, get away from me, you queer. I said, get away from my children, you pedophile. And like, he starts like, uh, you know, and then there's like a guy in a dress and he's like, uh, you know, and, and my kids are laughing and my wife's like, okay, honey, you know, we can go now. I'm, I'm just like, yelling, like, you fag, you queer. And, you know, you, you say, why do you do that? You know, here's my, my thought is this. Like, I'm, I'm a small guy, but if you want to fight me, you better come out swinging. Amen. You think you're going to yell at me? I'm going to yell back. Amen. You're going to fight me? And, look, let me just say this. Whether it's out there or in here, you want to fight Pastor Jimenez, you better come out swinging. Because I, I will, you know, I will punch and I will pull hair and I will, I will <laughs> bite you. I'll do whatever I got to do. But, you know, my thought is this, like, because I don't know these freaks, what they're going to do. So, like, to me, I'm just, like, making a big scene because then everyone's looking. So then I'm just, like, preaching a sermon. I'm like, you faggot! You know, and then, but also people are looking at us. So now, like, if this guy tries to talk to us, I'm like, there's all these eyewitnesses, you know? And then I'm sure tons of people that are probably like, oh, praise the Lord, I'm glad somebody's saying it. Because, you know, most people are normal. I think most people that like ice cream are normal. Um, <laughs> The point that I'm making is that you better count the cost. You know, and if you're going to stand up in, in, in our day and age and preach the way that we preach, you know, I just have to realize that I might have some freak try to yell at me. And, I, and my kids were like, man, it's been a long time since you've been recognized. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I know. But my kids loved it. They're all laughing or whatever, and, you know, making faces at the guy or whatever. But look, in the Christian life, you better count the cost. You better just realize that, like, if you're going to stand up for Christ, it's going to cost you something. And it's going to, and, and, and this Nazarite vow, it costs them something. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. Look at verse 20. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering. And, you know, like, everywhere my wife and I go, we're just constantly running into, like, church people. And a lot of times it's ex-church people, so that makes it even more awkward. 
So I was just thinking to myself, like, I bet there's like some Verity Baptist Church person. I mean, there's probably always someone at Coldstone from our church. And um, but anyway, I didn't see anybody. Number six twenty. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. This is holy for the priest, which the wave breast and the heave shoulder. And after the Nazarite, uh, after that the Nazarite may drink the wine. Verse twenty one. This is the law of the Nazarite who hath vowed and of his offerings unto the Lord for his separation beside that his hand shall get according to the vow which he vowed, so he must do after the law of his separation. So just real quickly, I want you to notice that at verse 21, we kind of end this section on the Nazarite vow, but that's not the end of the chapter. So there's these verses at the end of the chapter, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. Let me just kind of touch on these real quickly as we finish up tonight. And in verses 22 through 27, uh, we have what's commonly referred to as the priestly blessing or the Aaronic blessing. And this is a blessing that Aaron, the high priest or the priest, was to give to the children of Israel. Notice it there in verse 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee. I want you to notice these beautiful verses, verses 24 through 27. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So this is, of course, the Aaronic uh, blessing. And uh, usually if someone, if I go to visit someone at the hospital and I, I want to read a passage of Scripture and pray for them or somebody asks me to pray uh, over them or a blessing. This is a passage of scripture that I often use. Uh, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And I, I want you to just notice real quickly, if you go back to Leviticus 9, just real quickly, you're there in Numbers, if you just flip back to Leviticus 9 and verse 22. Leviticus 9, 22. Leviticus 9, 22. And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people... Because in Leviticus 9, we were told that Aaron lifted up his hands and blessed the people. Leviticus 9.22. I want you to get this picture. And Aaron, the high priest, standing before the congregation, and Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and came down from the offering, from offering of the sin offering and burnt the offering and peace offering. So when Aaron is giving these sacrifices, he's standing before the people. He holds up his hands. He lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Is what the Bible says. But we don't really know, we, in Leviticus, we're not told what the blessing was. But in Numbers 6, we're told that the blessing, verse 23, speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel. So this was probably the blessing that Aaron gave. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, I just want you to notice real quickly, just as we finish up, that there are different statements that are made here. In fact, there are six different statements. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give uh, thee peace. So there are six statements that are made, but these six statements could be divided into three different categories. And these are the three categories of God's blessing. Because this is, Mo, this is Aaron blessing the children of Israel. And this is the blessing that the Lord told him to give. And I want you to notice the three categories of the Lord's blessing. The first is the category of his favor. Because notice number 624. The Lord bless thee. And usually when we think of the word blessing, we think that God's going to do nice things for us. Look at verse 25. The last part of verse 25 and be gracious unto thee. So part of God's blessing is God's favor upon our lives. When he blesses us, he's gracious unto thee. And this is something that you should pray for. And when I pray for the blessing of God, I often pray that God would give us favor with both God and men. It is the favor of God that God wants to be gracious towards you. He wants to bless you. This is what we normally think regarding blessings. And it is that God is doing nice things for us and giving us nice things. But I want you to notice that's not the only category of blessing. The first category is the favor of God. But the second category is also the fortification of God. Or we could say 
It is the protection of God. Because look at the last part of verse 24. And keep thee. Look at the last part of verse 26. And give thee peace. So part of God's blessing is not just that he blesses you and he's gracious to you, but part of it is that he keeps you and he gives you peace. That he keeps you, he keeps you safe and secure and he allows you to have peace in your life. That's a part of God's blessing as well. And we should be praying that God continues to bless us and and give us peace and to keep us uh, 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 in, in his favor. And then the third part of God's blessing, so the first part is his favor, the second part is his fortification, and then the third part is his fellowship. Because look at verse 25, the Lord make his face shine upon thee. Look at verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. Those, both, those terms have to do with us getting close to God, us getting to know God. Part of God's blessing is that he makes his face shine upon thee and that he lifts up his countenance upon thee. You know, the Bible says that it is a blessing to get close to God. The Bible says that, that those that, will, that are pure are going to see God. So it kind of makes sense that this is, because this might seem random, like it's tagged on at the end of this chapter. But I think the reason that it's tagged on at the end of this chapter is because those who took of the Nazarite vow and those that put effort to consecrate and separate themselves from the Lord would have the blessing of God upon their lives. And what would that look like? Well, he would be gracious to them. It'd be their, his favor. He would keep them and give them peace. It would be his fortification. And he would make his face to shine upon them and lift up his countenance towards them. And it would be his fellowship. So when we think of the blessings of God, don't just think of the favor of God. Think about the fact that he also keeps us safe. Think about the fact that safety is of the Lord. Think about the fact that God knows and God knows best. And sometimes God keeps us from things and, and he gives us peace. And that should be acknowledged as a blessing. And also don't forget about the fellowship of God. That we get to know God and we get to, to read his word and we get to fellowship with him. And, make, and, and the Lord will make his face shine upon us. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this chapter. And there's just there's so much in this chapter, uh, and, and I pray that you would help us as we, as we learned it today, um, that we would apply the things that we've learned, and that we would choose to consecrate ourselves uh, unto the Lord and separate ourselves unto the Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to bless our church and help our church, help us to be uh, acknowledge these blessings from you, your favor, your fortification, and also your fellowship. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother RJ come up and lead us in a final song. And of course, I want